0: Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, RestoredTemecula.Church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message.
1: Like Tom mentioned, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here of Restore Temecula and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. And uh, this morning I have the privilege of continuing our series through the book of John called Jesus Is. We have been journeying through the book of John seemingly forever since uh, our first gathering which was back in May of 2018. And we're actually getting to the very end of the story. And we are kind of hitting this point today. It's sort of like the culmination of so many things in this one text. And it's actually just five verses that we're going to be going through today. It's not a whole lot of text, but it is profound. What we're going to be talking through today is some of the most important realities that we could ever think through, meditate on and really take appropriate for ourselves and, uh, and, and help shape us into disciples of Jesus, people who enjoy Jesus, obey him, and operate like him. So the stuff that we're gonna talk about today really does matter, so I'm gonna go ahead and start with prayer, because I really need God's help um, as I dive in. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for everyone who's in the room right now. Thank you for all who will be listening to this or watching this later. Um, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he gave his life for us. Thank you that his sacrifice on our behalf is so deep, it's so rich that we can never, we can, we'll never know all of the extent of what he did for us until we're face to face with him. But we get to start today. We get to start right now to really enjoy and savor the good news about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, and how that changes everything about us. Father, would you empower me today? Uh, Would you help me to proclaim Jesus? And would you give us ears to hear him, ears to hear his words, ears to hear his gospel? And would you change us more and more into his image to become more and more like him? Help us to learn from the people who knew him best, who we're going to encounter in this story today. Help us to enter into this story as a church and come out different. God, we love you, and we thank you, and I thank you that everything is possible through him. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I think it was about a week, just about a week and a half ago, I was, uh, I was in Puerto Rico, and we were at the, the Spanish fort that's called El Morro. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever seen it? Okay, we got a couple people. If you ever go down to the Caribbean for a a cruise. A lot of times you're going to leave from San Juan. You'll fly into San Juan and that's kind of where you'll take your um, your cruise ship. Uh, I don't know if cruise ships are still happening or when they're coming back, but in in any case, it's a spot uh, at the tip of the island where the Spaniards built a huge fort like 500 years ago. And it's just a major tourist destination. It's a lot of fun. And I had been there as a kid. We used to go fly kites and stuff uh, when we were children and I got to take my kids and kind of got to do the same thing with them. It was a really fun day. And we did something different. I actually had never been in the fort before, but we went into the fort and there was a a little bookstore there. And I picked up a book. It was a book about a very famous man, a very famous Puerto Rican man. His name is Roberto Clemente. Um, Anybody familiar with Roberto Clemente? There are a few people who are. Uh, If you don't know who he is, don't worry. I will fill you in. Um, Roberto Clemente was a remarkable man. And I picked up this book uh, for my kids. It's a kid's book. It's like one of those animated stories. I wanted them to know the story. I wanted them to understand who he is and why he's so important to the people of Puerto Rico. So I've been thinking about Clemente ever since. So for about 10 days or so, however long, I've just been thinking about his life, uh, reading about him. And so I'm kind of like just did a deep dive into who he is. And so I want to tell you a little bit about him today. It's not what we're going to be exclusively talking about, but it's going to kind of set up our time. So if you don't know who Roberto Clemente is, uh, he was born in the 1930s. He was born during the great depression. He was born in Puerto Rico in this part of the island called Carolina, which is over by San Juan. It's like a suburb. And he was born to a working class family. Uh, His his mom, she did like laundry for a living. And his dad was a foreman at a sugar cane facility, uh, a mill. And Roberto Clemeni was the youngest of seven children, so big family, and uh, they were a family, like, they never, they, they didn't lack for food or clothes, um, but they were a family that was touched by tragedy. Uh, so one of the seven, one of the seven was a daughter, Anna, she was five, and she ended up dying because she had a little, like, silk dress that caught on fire. You can imagine the pain and horror and agony of losing a five-year-old to that kind of tragedy, but that wasn't all. Uh, He had two younger brothers who died of cancer, and Roberto's eldest sister, Rosa, died in childbirth. So it was just a family that had unspeakable, untold tragedy uh, that they grew up with, that they lived with. And by all accounts, uh, Roberto was like a really good kid growing up. He was devoted to his parents. He worked hard. He was obviously, he was, he ended up being an incredible athlete. He was always the first one picked for the team. Um, he was so good. We got any Javelin players in the room? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he was so good. He had his crazy arm. Uh, he was so good at Javelin. Like he just, he got so good at it that they thought he was going to make the Puerto Rican uh, Olympics. They was going to make the, the Olympics for the 52 Puerto Rican team. But it was, like, it was baseball that he loved. That was his thing. And he grew up much like my dad. My dad, uh, he, he grew up with, I don't remember what he called it, he had a specific name for it, but he grew up playing baseball, and the way that they learned was they would take bottle caps, so think like a, you know old-school Coke can, or Coke bottle, I should say, that you take the top off. So they would take that, and they would throw it as hard as you could, and then you got a, a wooden broomstick, and you, to, you had to hit it. So if you can imagine the kind of hand-eye coordination that you developed playing that, He was crazy talented, Roberto Clemente was, and he loved baseball. So he was a guy who was shaped by tragedy. Um, He was given incredible athletic ability, and he was taught hard work by his working-class family and resilience, naturally, with everything that he went through. And he he grew into one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, He had a legendary arm. You just Google it, watch the videos later. Uh, there's a story going around, there was a story going around that at one point he threw a ball 465 feet, which to give some context, if you or I were to try to throw a ball, if you threw it 200, I'd be impressed. If you threw it 300, I'd be like, sign you up. Like you're, you're the wrong calling in life. He threw it 465. Just incredible. And this was before people were like into working out and all that stuff, like working out now. He wasn't, like a, he wasn't into strength training in the way that people are now. Um, he swung this bat that was super heavy. So he's kind of like, almost like a cartoon character. I mean, just threw it harder than everybody, He swung a bat that was like a tree trunk, and, uh, and then he ran like he was being chased. So, <laughs> he was amazing. And he played through a ton of injury, and he played with passion. He was born to play baseball. That's what he said. Um, if you're unfamiliar with baseball or you're not a fan, don't worry. That's about the extent of the baseball talk for today, because uh, I'm way more interested in who he, is as a, who he was as a, as a person as a human being, as a man. Uh, He was legendary for his kindness and generosity with people. So when he was playing, I want you to imagine a grown man playing professional baseball. They didn't make the kind of money then that they make now, but they still made what would be a great living. And for 10 years, he was from Puerto Rico, but he played in, with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He actually got drafted by the Dodgers. Sorry guys, the Dodgers lost him. I know there's some Dodger fans in the room. Almost had Clemente. Uh, he got taken by the Pirates. And uh, when he was living in, in Pittsburgh, he didn't buy himself a house and live on his own. He lived with a family. Like he befriended a family and he, like, he lived with them. And he like, would eat meals with another family and they, they called him like their son. Clemente was like their son, even though there was no Um, blood relation, there was, you know, ethnic barriers. Uh, Roberto Clemente was a black Puerto Rican man, so he grew up under Jim Crow. He broke a lot of that stuff down, just with his love and his care for people. Um, His love for children was legendary, get into that a little bit later. But he was a very, very special human being. Not a perfect one, but a very special man. And in 1972, he went down to Nicaragua, and he took a bunch of Puerto Rican amateur players, and he took them down to Nicaragua to play in a tournament. It was like they're all-stars. And he just fell in love with the people of Nicaragua. Uh, he got to know many people, he befriended many people, and he just loved the country, he loved the people. And he came back, this was November of 72. On December 23rd, 1972, so a day before Christmas Eve, uh, a massive, massive earthquake struck uh, Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. And it was devastating. 7,000 people died. And thousands of other people were injured. About a quarter million people actually became homeless because of the devastation and the destruction. Roberto lost a lot of friends in the quake. Uh, He spent most of that November in Nicaragua. And so he, you know, he felt personally that this was an event that, that it was like his tragedy. It was like his suffering for him. He felt the threat that a lot of his colleagues and the fans and the people that he met um, were under. And so he quickly accepted the kind of like honorary chairmanship of an earthquake relief committee and he used the local media to appeal for help, which is common. You see um, people who are well-known using their, like kind of leveraging their platform to recruit funds and gather support for uh, causes, So he did that. But he didn't just do that. Like he worked day and night. He solicited donations door to door. So he went to like the wealthy, the wealthy neighborhoods in San Juan, went door to door. He raised $150,000, gathered 26 tons of, of food and clothing and medicine. And the thing was, he wasn't a relief worker. So he was doing all this work. Um, the most obvious way for him to help was to go on the radio and ask for money. But he didn't just stop there. Um, he actually... Was, would gather resources, he'd show up, he'd help pack uh, airplanes, he did all kinds of stuff. Here's the problem that happened, though. Um, if, if you're not familiar with Nicaragua in the 1970s and 60s, there was a regime that was in place that, w- that was regarded as a kleptocracy. Anybody ever heard that term before? Um, I had to look it up. Not, I didn't know what it was. The, the word kleptos, it means like thief. So it was a thiefcracy If that gives you any idea of like what it was like in that country, Uh, it was a family that was entrenched in power that was stealing resources and was hoarding goods for their own benefit. That's what Nicaragua was under. So if you can believe this, there's a quarter million people um, who are now homeless and there's resources coming in from all around the world and those resources are not getting to the people. They're being taken. They're being seized uh, by this regime. And so, so here's what happens. They're sending, and Roberto's like organizing this stuff, they're sending x-ray machines, medical supplies, all these different things, and it turns out it's not getting to the people. And so there was one, one person who went, who was a friend of his, who went down Nicaragua, and he, this is what he said when he got back. He said that they, he said that once they got off a plane, um, the military tried to seize everything. And he told the soldiers that if they didn't let him through, he would reload his plane, fly back to San Juan, and tell Roberto Clementini what was happening. And so that worked. So his name got the supplies through. However, it seemed to him that most of the supplies were being diverted. And Roberto Clementini was told this story, and he was silent, but he was seething, he was angry. They could see it in his eyes. When they finished telling the story, his voice raised, raised a high pitch, and he said that they had to do something to get the aid of the people who needed it. If he had to travel to Managua himself to make sure that that regime would not steal, he said that he, that's what he would do. And so that's what he did. So on, um, it was New Year's Eve, 1972, uh, he packed up a plane that he chartered himself that he was going to pay for himself, an aging DC-7, which is an old prop plane four engines with propellers, and he boarded the flight. So why am I telling you this? As I've been thinking about this story and chewing on it, there's something that I feel like God was stirring in me. And it's something very simple something that that we instinctively know, but we don't think about a whole lot, which is that when we're facing a crisis, it requires courage. Crisis requires courage. I was thinking about like this world is still in crisis. We live in a world, I don't, 2020 speaks for itself forever and ever. <laughs> it's a crisis. Uh, 2021, has it gotten that much better? It's, it hasn't gotten all that much better. Uh, there's, financial cri- there's a financial crisis that just feels like it's gonna come at some point. It's just gonna catch up to us, everything that's happened. Um, there's obviously people who are sick and dying. There's lots of jobs that have been lost. There's a, an impending, I think, mental health Tsunami, the financial and the mental health, that's going to, it's going to catch up to us. This is a world that's in crisis and there's more to come. And we're here. Who, who chose when we lived? Jesus did. Like he chose to put us in this time, in this space in a world in crisis. And what I think we're going to learn today as we go through this text is how to find courage to face a crisis Many of us have experienced what it's like to be in a crisis. We all did actually in 2020. And we also are grappling with that. But I believe God wants to prepare us to face the difficulties and the challenges that are coming in a new way, in a different way, in a fresh way, with courage. And we're gonna take a look at Jesus's moment of crisis right now. The greatest and deepest crisis he would ever face. And we're gonna learn from him. We're gonna learn from the people who were there, who saw what happened. And I think the implications for us are going to be big. So turn with me over to John 19, verses 25 to 30. be up on the screen. John 19, verses 25 to 30. There they are. Thanks, guys. The uh, context, very, very quickly, if you haven't been uh, journeying with us, how many messages is this? We're like 60-something in. 61 messages in. So we've covered the life of Jesus, his teaching, his trial, his, his arrest, his sham trial, and now he is actually, he's on the cross. So we're catching up with him. If you don't know the story, Jesus was falsely tried. The witnesses actually contradicted each other, so it was just like a shocking injustice. Imagine if you're on trial, and the people who are accusing you can't, can't even agree on their story, and you get, and they're like, guilty, I'm going to put him to death and Pilate. I can't even get on all of it, whatever. Go back and see the messages. But Pilate was trying to release him. The the Jewish people were like, crucify him. So he's on the cross. So he's been abandoned by his people and by the world. And so here he is in his moment of deepest pain, deepest trauma. Uh, He's been whipped. He's been tortured effectively. Um, If we could see Jesus, he would be probably not recognizable as a human. He would look like a, I hate to say it this way, but you would look like a piece of meat, like a piece of raw meat, in the vague shape of a human, if you can imagine that. Just crazy trauma. I say all that to say, if whatever you've been through, Jesus knows. He knows what it's like. And this was his moment, his moment of deepest need. Let's find out how he handles it. Verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So these were in contrast to the soldiers who were gambling for his clothes, who just kind of used Jesus, exploited him. Here's people who love him. These are his friends and his family. Verse 26 says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, he loved standing there. He said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. 29, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they mixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, Gave up his spirit. Jesus died. The author of life is he's gone. And who was right there in the front seat, in the the front row, to see all this happening? His mom. His mom. And his friends. So here's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at three things. We're gonna look at this. We're gonna look at First thing, we're going to ask, answer the question, what did Mary learn about Jesus? Second thing, we're going to talk about what we learn about Jesus in this passage. And the third thing we're going to talk about is what did it mean for our lives. So what did Mary learn about Jesus? This is the first thing. I'll read a couple of quick verses again. When, May, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. And then to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. What's happening here? I'm going to read an excerpt from a book that's called Last Words: Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. Some profound words. What's happening? So even if you don't know any of the story, this is going to explain it. On that Good Friday, which by the way, how weird is it that it's called Good Friday? Wasn't so good for Jesus. Mary's son's life was ebbing away. As a child, she had held him. Her hugs and her love would be instinctual to a mom. You know this, you've been around a mom with a baby, it's just, it's, it's instinct. It's this depth of care and nurture and affection. Jesus had that. His mother loved him that way. Her baby must have laughed, cried, and chattered. He would have learned to crawl, to walk, to speak, to grow and develop as children do. A lot of us have young children, even if you don't, there's a lot of young kids' children in our, in our church family. You know what it's like to watch kids grow up. It's quite an adventure. And there's a lot of affection that grows as you see someone grow up. Even if you don't know them well, she knew him better than anybody. She would have cared for him and nurtured him until he became a man. A little bit of backstory. On Jesus's first visit to Jerusalem with his mother, a stranger, someone she did not know, approached her, an old man, who was known because he was a good man, a righteous man, a devout man. He approached Mary and this was a moment that this old man had prayed for forever and it came. He dreamed that he would see the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God, the Lord's Christ. And he spotted Mary and their eyes met. And then he spoke this prophetic word over her. Behold, this child, Jesus is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul. That's Luke 2, 34 to 35. The rising and falling and piercing. That's what was prophesied over this young boy and his, and his mother. And there was, Mary got pronouncements like nobody's business. Angels showed up and talked to her. I mean, she heard all kinds of stuff. Angelic encounters, virgin birth, expensive gifts from, from wise men. She knew that Jesus was no ordinary child, but what did it mean? when Simeon said, a sword is going to pierce through your own heart. I'm sure she remembered this when she saw Jesus on that cross. She felt that blade as Jesus died. It goes on. The sharp edge of reality ripped through her soul as the Pharisees and Romans together, the world, murdered her son when he had done nothing wrong. The weeping and tears must have blinded her and run dry in her heartache. Her son did not deserve this. He didn't. She could only watch and weep and pray. He suffered among criminals. This was not a good Friday for Mary. His life drained before her eyes. As time passed, he moved closer and closer to his death. Unbelievably, what do we see Jesus doing on that cross? He prayed for God to forgive his tormentors. Then he promised paradise to a criminal. Bewildering stuff. A criminal that was hung up next to him. He told him, you're gonna be with me in paradise today because that prim- criminal repented man (laughs) and he turned to her in that moment into the disciple that he loved and what did he say behold your son he saw her he saw her and he gave her a gift he consoled her with words that meant something in a male-dominated society he knew that she needed she he knew what she needed and he offered comfort John may be able to provide financially or even offer emotional support to her as, as a son would, to an aging parent. Jesus could not take away the searing pain of the loss that Mary experienced, having to watch him die, but he could help her. And that's exactly what he did. So what did Mary learn? I'm convinced, among other things, that Mary learned that in the midst of a crisis, he sees me. He sees me. He sees me. when uh, Roberto Clemente went to Nicaragua for that baseball tournament he met a little boy and this little boy needed to be fitted for artificial legs and he was deeply moved by what he saw and he paid for the operation for the little boy now when that earthquake hit like i mentioned earlier there was 200,000 people 250,000 people that were left homeless there were thousands who died many, many thousands more who were injured. And Clemente did not have to be asked twice to contribute. He threw himself to the task. Two planes had already been flown to Nicaragua. Like I said earlier, the relief was not getting to people. And so he decided, I'm gonna take that third plane myself. He heard that the previous shipments hadn't gotten there, says his wife, Vera, and he was worried about the boy whom he was helping there. That's what Jesus is like. That's what he's like. There may be hundreds of thousands in pain and in sorrow, thousands dead, but he thinks about the one. That's what Jesus is like. Like he sees you, he sees me. And I've experienced this in my own life in some profound ways. Uh, When I was uh, about so it would have been about 10 or 11 years old. Um, one of my cousins from Puerto Rico moved out to California to live with us. And this was a, he became a brother to me. His name is Abner. And Abner was amazing. He was funny. People absolutely loved him. We loved him. Um, he grew up in a very different home than mine. His home was, he, he came from a very broken home. Uh, his, his dad left at a young age. so I can't even get into all the details there, but just a lot of pain and sorrow and trauma relationally that he endured. And so he started coping in ways that were not healthy, not good. And so my mom saw him and she's like, come with us. He was only 14 years old, maybe 15, freshman in high school. He was like, come with us, come to live with us in California. And he did. And for the next... 20, over 20 something years, he, he lived in California and he lived in my house for a very long time until, you know, I think until I got to college pretty much. And uh, so he, this was a dear, dear person in my life, someone who I laughed with, someone who I grew up with. And I'll never forget the day that we got the, the news. Um, it was uh, the, the terrible day in 2016 that he had died. Um, just came out of absolutely nowhere. And as it turned out, like he, he relapsed. Um, he had a, a drug problem that he thought he had beat. But when it comes to heroin, you only need to relapse once for that to be the end. And so it was horrific sorrow, pain, loss, the likes of which I'd never experienced before. Heather and I went through this. Um, and when, with a loss like that, it comes in waves. The grief comes in waves. Uh, so I could go a few weeks, even a few months, and feel fine, and then like a memory will come, or I'll think about, oh, he's not here for this—the birth of a child, the birth of one of my children who would be like a niece or a nephew to him. Um, I'll be reminded of something, and it just hits hard. And I've realized like there's just this is going to be a wound that I carry for the rest of my life, and. Um, I'll never forget, there was one day uh, recently when we were going through the uh, New Testament in 90 days, so it's our Bible reading plan uh, that many of you guys have been going through, which has been amazing. Um, There was a story in there, uh, and I was going through one of those waves of pain and sorrow over the losses, the loss of my cousin and everything that meant. And then I read these words out of Matthew 14. I don't think these are in the back, so don't worry about these verses. I'm just going to read them. This is the story of John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, um, was standing up to power. He was speaking truth to power, and it cost him his life. And his head, John the Baptist's head, he was beheaded, It was brought on a platter and given to this girl who had asked for it. And she carried it to her mother. And then John's disciples came, and they removed the corpse and buried it and went and reported to Jesus, verse 13, and this is what hit me. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. I had never understood what that verse meant until that moment. He was overcome. He was overcome with sorrow. It's his cousin, like a brother, who was on the same mission and who are intertwined forever with their stories. And in that moment, I broke. And I tell you, I've never felt more seen in my life because it was like Jesus was in the room saying, I see you and I know your pain. He met me in that place of pain, a pain that he knew personally. In that moment it was like, oh, I think that scripture was there for me. Not necessarily true, but it was personalized in such a way that it was like, it's like forget the millions and you know, billions of people who have read the Bible, that was there for me. And I experienced Jesus. I needed consolation and that was a moment of healing. Not that the grief is over, but it was a moment of healing for me as I realized Jesus sees me and he cares. He sees me and he cares. What consolation do you need? What pain do you carry today? You and I suffer. Life and trials go hand in hand. This is a quote I'm reading that I thought was so helpful. Jesus saw it and he experienced it. He knew tribulation. He saw his own difficulty and yours on the cross. Like he knew his mother's weakness. And the crazy part is, I don't know if you guys have ever been in this space. I think I'm going to call it like um, self-focused survival mode. Anybody know what that's like? You know what that is? Like irritated with everybody. Uh, You're hurting. It's legit hurt and pain. But the way that you carry that pushes people away or makes people feel trivialized or whatever. He never had that self-focused survival mode. He didn't know it. He knew nothing of it. He saw his mother's weakness. He was not consumed with himself when we could be, but he looked out to comfort others. This is Jesus for you, for me, for us. What did Mary learn about Jesus? He sees me. He sees me. This is important. Write this down, chew on this, meditate on this for your own life. And for the people that are in this community that you know that you're walking with. Jesus sees me. So second thing, what do we learn about Jesus in this text? John 19, 28 to 30. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What is that in Greek? Tetelestai. Tetelestai. You may see that someday on a tattoo on somebody's arm. <laughs> Tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Not a good Friday for him, but if we get this, this is an incredibly good Friday for us. What's happening here? Despite this, I've been shocked at how few words are actually used to record his death. Did you notice that? It's almost nothing. It's just almost like a passing comment. But it's like the culmination of all of human history. So I'm going to put it this way. He used a few words. I'm going to use many. (laughs) You're all welcome for that. Eye on the clock. OK. I want you to think about it this way. This world was created to be a beautiful garden paradise in which every person was endowed with inestimable worth and dignity and given a role to play in the flourishing of humankind. Everybody. Then uh, sin struck and brought destruction, like an earthquake, like a terrible earthquake. Sin turned God's beautiful garden into a disaster zone. So instead of flourishing, what we have now is decay, destruction, and death. And that's the world we live in. So humanity was created to be self-giving, to be a a self-giving people that shows the world this is what God is like. That's what our identity royally is that's been bestowed on us as human beings, just by nature of being born. And instead of self-giving love, you see in the, in the early chapters of Genesis, this turn to, what do we see Adam and Eve doing after the fall? Hiding, shame, blaming, looking out for themselves. Selfishness entered into the world. That was not the, wasn't the idea by any means. And I think all of us know how destructive selfishness is, our own and other people's. Now, instead of using the power, this, I can't, this is a whole message in itself, But God shares his power. He shares his power. He, he wanted human partners to rule the world with. He shares his power. He doesn't hold on to it. And that's beautiful, but it also means people can use power however they want. Ideally, with God's wisdom. But instead of God's wisdom, we've chosen our own understanding. That's our inheritance in Adam. So humans use their power to serve themselves like a kleptocracy. People suffered and inflicted suffering on each other. It was not the flourishing partnership that God had intended all along. But God made a promise. If you read this, Genesis 315, remarkable promise that God made. He said, one day, I'm paraphrasing, not the exact word you're gonna find, but this is the idea. I'm going to send you one who's going to renew my garden and bring flourishing to all of creation. Paul preached a good, pretty good message on that, if you want to listen to that. Renewal. And he said, essentially, sin will not rule forever. God's king will come, and he will reign, and he will make all things right. And he's going to use his power to benefit other people. And he's going to restore everything to the way he intended it. And generation after generation after generation passed, and guess what? People were still messing it up. You want to read the Old Testament? You you can't help but walk away with that. People are still messing it up. Even the best people, David. We don't even need to get into that right now. Solomon, just one failure after another, after another, after another. And one day, finally, at the right time, Jesus arrives. He shows up on the scene. And he loved people like they were his family. He did good to everybody. He served everyone. He refused to stand idly by as the powers and authorities cheat, kill, and destroy our world and people. So I was thinking about this. It just makes sense. like, when there was exploitation, Clementi came, and he's like, no. He, like, said no to that, and he fought that. And Jesus, this is what it says about Jesus. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus didn't stand on by. he did something. He challenged the rulers and the authorities and he won. And he uses considerable power not to serve himself but other people. Philippians 2, five to eight. These are very famous verses. But think about it as though this describes really describes Jesus and what he was like on the cross. Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by taking, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He wasn't thinking about himself. He came for the benefit of other people. And I was thinking about this again. I've been chewing on the the story of Clemeni. When the earthquake took place in Nicaragua, this is his wife talking, he felt a responsibility as if he had lost relatives of his own. So here's a man who had been shaped by suffering, crazy loss, who was like, I want to move towards people who are suffering and going through crazy losses. He felt like it was his own relatives that he had lost, And so the campaign to help people, you know, when it started, Christmas Day. Can you imagine a more inconvenient time of the year to go say, family, I need to go do this than Christmas? That's what happened. And so people were lining up, they were bringing gifts. And it says that um, four days before he flew off to go to Nicaragua, he was at this Rambi Thorne Stadium. It's a famous stadium in Puerto Rico filling bags and moving goods of clothes. He was serving practically the needs of people. He could have just lent his name, but he got messy. I need you to see this is what Jesus is like. That's what makes his story, the Clemente story, cool. It's just an echo of Jesus who came, who became a servant to us, who washed our feet, who loved us, who cleansed us. And he didn't do it for money or for fame. He did it for love's sake. That's what he's like. He left behind the comfort and safety of his throne. And I can't get in, I can't go through all of it because we're just never, we could be here all day just talking about the gospel and just talking about all the ways that he's amazing. He left his throne and his safety to come to a place of unspeakable pain and poverty in order to make us rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That's what Jesus did. But here's the crazy part. Jesus did the one thing that we could not do for ourselves, that no human being could ever do. Not you, not me not the finest people who have ever lived, not Clemente, nobody. There's one thing that we can never do. 1 John 4.10 says this, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the only one who can make the guilt and the shame and the selfishness, the stain of sin go away. He's the only one who could do that. Nobody else could do that. Jesus, his death, as tragic and as terrible as it was, it blessed the world. It was a blessing to the entire world. Here's the end of my conversation around Roberto Clemente. So they collected all kinds of money and goods, and it became clear This stuff isn't getting to the people who need it. There's a crisis, he's pressing in with courage, it's not working out, it's not happening. So he's like, I'm gonna get on that plane. The second that he got involved in that way, the Nicaraguan, um, who was it? The military leader of Nicaragua was like, I'll be there at the airport to meet you. So all of a sudden, things change. When someone who has power and influence fixes his eyes and gaze on you, things change. And when someone does that for the least of these, the world changes. He went to confront the powers and disarm them. But he never got the chance. On January 31st, 1972, New Year's Eve, Clemente boarded a plane full of relief for people of Nicaragua. Uh, He didn't know this, but the plane was too heavy and it was damaged. It had run off, it had skidded off a runway, it was damaged, and so the plane took off but it became clear right away that something was terribly wrong. Uh, The the pilot tried to make a turn and to do an emergency landing at the airport, but the plane crashed in heavy seas about a mile and a half from shore. Nobody survived. The world went into mourning. The people of Puerto Rico had three days of mourning. Um, As I've read more about it, it's kind of crazy. Multiple people had told him, don't get on that plane. Uh, His son was like, that plane's going down. Dad, don't get on that plane. His wife was like, are you sure about this? Look at how heavy it looks. It looks overloaded. But here's the crazy part. He had this sense. This is what his wife, his, he told his wife that he was in a hurry to have a family. This is when they were courting. By the way, guys, if you're single guys? Here's a great way to court a woman. <laughs> I'm in a hurry to have a family because I'm going to die young and God has a plan for me. <laughs> That's what he said to his wife, Vera. And then she's like, well, I felt like God's plan for me was to assist Roberto. So his death, while it was a tragedy, it blessed. It released incredible blessing. So here's what happened. When he passed away, all those funds that were raised were used to build a pediatrics wing in the Messiah Hospital in Nicaragua. The expansion, there was an expansion of that department that was built with those funds. And so with the collaboration of engineers, they would transfer funds to there was this incredible hospital, a modern state-of-the-art hospital where children who were suffering could come and receive care. And they built it beautifully and they would, you know, do transfers transfer funds as needed. And it was amazing. So Clemente cared about the 250, the 250,000 that were homeless, but it was that boy who needed new legs, who had a, the pediatrics wing to go get care. That's what his death did. It released blessing into the world. Tangible, specific blessing. And that's what Jesus is like. His death releases tangible benefit to the world. He died for the sins of the world. He died for your sin and mine. As he hung on the cross, he had you in mind. He had you in mind. He had me in mind. He had us in mind. So not only does Jesus see me, but he loves me. He laid down his life for me. That's the second thing. The third, last thing will be the shortest. What does this mean for our lives? Basically, I wanna ask the question, how then should we live? How should we live our lives? Here's the cool part. This is what makes the Bible so amazing. We don't have to guess. Uh, who was there with Jesus? Who was, who was looking at Jesus from, from down below? There was Mary, 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 bunch of Marys. <laughs> and then there was one more person, who was that? John, and John had much to say about this. You can read about it. First John, second John, third John. First John 3, 16 to 18 says this. Here's a reflection from John who was there looking at Jesus from the cross. If you were to ask John the question, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for this family, this Jesus family in the world, this beautiful family that Jesus is creating? Here's his reflection. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word and speech but in action and in truth. What does that mean? Christian communities to be marked by the same things that marked Jesus' life. He saw us and he loved us. So now, how should we live? We ought to see each other and love each other. Empathy and action, both. Empathy and action are both crucially important. Why? Well, how did Jesus treat us? In the pain and in the needs of others, we're meant to see ourselves. Like when someone's hurting, when someone's in pain. I think that's what made Clementi so special. Who knew pain if not that guy who buried four siblings? Who knew pain but him? And who knew pain but Jesus, really, ultimately? Clementi's just a man, a sinful man who needed a savior himself. Jesus knew pain. And I think Jesus' life, if we really get it, we're meant to see ourselves in other people's pains and remember the way that he loved us. So, what does that accomplish Many things. It kills pride and arrogance. Are you struggling with pride and arrogance today? Everybody should probably put their hand up to some degree. You want to kill that in your life? Try this for a while. See people and love people. Without judgment, without condemnation, without fixing. See people and love people. That births love and sacrifice, right? The life of Jesus becomes our life. Then we begin to love others as he loved us then his story becomes our story. And then the world is changed. I experienced this. Uh, I I talked earlier about my cousin Abner dying um, young and the shock and the horror of of that situation. Sort of like Mary, in a sense, when Jesus died, Mary needed help of all kinds. She was going to need financial support. She was going to need emotional support. And he gave her the disciple he loved, John. Sort of like Mary, when my cousin died, we needed support of all kinds. And one of the things that happened was um, we were as tight financially as we've ever been, I hope that we ever are. Uh, We had gone to visit Puerto Rico in August of that year, and it was October of 2016. So just a few months later, he died. And so we had to go back for the funeral and amidst all of that, the realization hit me, we don't have it. We don't have the money to go. It's just not there because we had spent all of our vacation budget for years on that trip in August. And as soon as our community in Uptown heard about it, they rallied and raised what we needed. They gave us exactly what we needed. It was like my pain and sorrow became theirs. And there were people who loved us, who looked after our our souls, and then also who met our practical needs. And that's Christian community. And it is life-changing. It's life-changing. I experienced the tangible love of Jesus in that moment. Um, And that is, I think, what Jesus wants to instill in us. He sees me, he loves me and so we ought to see and love one another. So I'm going to call the band up because as I've thought about this the reality is we're never going to see and love each other in this way unless we experience and receive what's happening in that moment. Like What's actually happening in that moment? Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. He's He's washing us and cleansing us of our sin. He's identifying with our pain and he's releasing a blessing into the world of forgiveness, of love, of empathy, of care. And if we don't experience that, we're not gonna be people who give ourselves to that. Now I'm happy to say, I, I think we are a church that does this well, but, I, but we can never rest on our laurels. So I just wanna ask you the question, Like, what do you need to receive today from Jesus' cross? Is it forgiveness? Man, like, are you loaded down with a guilty conscience about things that you have done? Or are you experiencing shame for what others have done to you? Ways in which you have been wronged. Ways in which you have been let down by whoever. Man, like, can I just encourage you today? He sees you. He loves you and he wants you to experience his love. I think he wants you to know that his gaze is upon you. And when someone of considerable power and influence fixes their gaze on you, the world changes. Just like it did for Mary, just like it did for those kids in Nicaragua, that's for you today. And the crazy part is, if we become a community that experiences this kind of love and begins to love one another in the ways that we have been loved, will be a courageous community in a time of crisis and in a world that needs. In a polarized world that just hears unhelpful things or imbalanced things, what if we were a people who were different but united by the love of Jesus, by empathy and action? Is that something you'd wanna be a part of? Because if you do, you have to receive the love of Jesus for yourself first. And yeah, I think that's what he's offering us today. So I'm going to pray for us and then we can go into a time of, of worship. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you that he laid down his life for us and that it's released blessing in the world. Remember what Tom preached a couple weeks ago, like you, there's a releasing of evil in the world when we reject you, God. But man, when one person embraces you, and obeys you it releases blessing and I pray Jesus that we'd be a people who would live with a full assurance of the blessing that you have bestowed on us in Jesus Christ and that we would be living in light of it would we be a people of radical courage in a world of crisis just like those early Christians just like John faced crazy uh, corruption in government crazy persecution with courage and that changed the world, and we're still talking about it today. Would we be that kind of people, God? Would you do a work in us that would lead to courage as we know that we're loved, that we're seen, and that we have a beautiful purpose in this world to be your partners and bringing your blessing upon everyone that we encounter? Would you be pleased to do this, Father? And would you be pleased to receive our praise in light of your goodness to us? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship him together, fam. We'll be up in a little bit.
0: Wonderful. I'll be quick, guys. If you would stand, if you're able, please. Uh, I want to call up the ministry team to just kind of assemble over here on the side. Um stretch out. Stretch out for just a minute. Uh, I'm going to take two minutes just because I can't help myself. Um, there's some incredibly profound truths that Eric just said. The cross is proof that God sees you and it's proof that He loves you, and it's the invitation to join Him in seeing and loving other people. It's your purpose in life. Okay? Before we respond, before we open things up, <clears throat> I just feel like we have to leave some space for the Spirit. Because if we're, if we're not careful, we will gloss over the profound truths of God's word that Herrick shared with us and we'll miss it. And by miss it, I mean we'll miss him. Because that's what you desperately need. Hear me, he sees you. You. Do you know what that means? All of it. The pain that you're experiencing, the joy that you're experiencing the insecurity that you're experiencing and the freedom that you're experiencing. He sees you. He sees you. That means you matter to him. He sees you. Can you just let your heart marinate on that for a second? You. I can already sense some of your minds are drifting right now. He sees you. And the cross means not only does he see you, but he loves you. And he invites you to join him, partner with him. His invitation to see and love others the way that he sees and loves you. My friend, are you gonna receive the gospel this morning or not? That's the question. There's men and women who are available to minister to you. Some of you don't feel seen. You haven't felt seen for a long time, go get prayer, please. God wants to tell you what's true. Some of you don't feel loved, you don't feel valued. The circumstances of your life are crowding in, the fog is closing in, and it's hard to see things clearly, let alone Him clearly. He sees you and He loves you. Some of you are in seasons where, excuse me, where not because you necessarily want to, but you're so consumed with self because you, you don't believe those other two things, that he sees you and loves you, that it keeps you from living out your purpose to see and to love others the way that he sees and loves you. Are you with me in this? Here, thank you, bro. So profound. Regardless of where you find yourself, the living God is ready to meet with you right now. In this moment, there are men and women filled with his spirit that want to minister to you right now in this moment. Some of them are here, some of them are there, but either way, the moment right now that we find ourselves in is a people of God coming together to press into him, to receive the truth of the gospel, the cross is proof, like Herrick said, it's proof. He sees you, he loves you, and it's his invitation to you to join him in seeing and loving other people. That's your purpose in life. Can we answer that call as people? Or are we just gonna cruise? Are we going to give in to the stereotypical suburban blah? We're just going to cruise through life. We check Mark's the box this morning of being at church. We're not at church. We're with the church. He sees you. He loves you. He invites you to see and love other people. People are ready for your ministry on the side. Go anytime you want. The band's going to serve us so we can offer him praise and response to the goodness of the gospel. I love you guys very much. Thank you again, JB. Profound. Song never gets old of singing. Like, oh man, grace and mercy found me. So strong. So strong. I love it. Um, before we close, uh, one of the things that we always want to do is we really want the Spirit of God to lead our time together. He has an agenda. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. He has an agenda, and it's a beautiful agenda. And I feel like uh, God highlighted two things. Um, so, Eric if you want to come and share, and Lisa, if you want to be on deck and ready. Um, I feel like God highlights some people that he wants to care for this morning.
1: Um, the thing that that was coming to mind since I've been chewing on this uh, during the response time was the idea of A debt. A, a debt. So I got a picture. It was like, think like the kind of bill that you would get if you're having car trouble and you, you go to a mechanic and they put a little estimate in the top corner, uh, which usually is shockingly big, but um, that's not the point. Uh, I felt like I saw like th- these, this red, like dye. like it is it's p- finished, like it's, it's paid for. And as I've been chewing on it, I, I think there might be a couple different things that Jesus wants to do. I think, I think he wants to apply this to us, what Paul talks about, where it says that Jesus erased the certificate of debt that was over our lives by forgiving us. And I think there's a couple different things here. I think one, it could be that he wants to remind you that he can cover your debt. Maybe it's the debt that you owe someone else, that you can find forgiveness for that. Or on the other side, if you feel unable to forgive, to release the debt, that he sees that as well, and he wants to help you release it. For him, it might be something like a five hundred dollar car bill. He's like, I can cover that. I can cover that for you. He has more than enough resources. It might feel big to us, depending on where we're at financially, um, but he can cover you. So I think that's the first group of people: forgiveness, either you need it for yourself, or you're, str- and you're struggling, or you're struggling to extend it. And the second thing, and I'll keep this really brief. Um, is I think Jesus sees there's people in the room. I get the sense that are going through deep doubt. So like you you sit maybe in in these gatherings and in your gospel communities and your and your time of reading the Bible and you're like I want this but and there's a list of things that keep you from experiencing fully everything that Jesus did and they might be wounds it might be pain that you've experienced that hasn't healed. Um, I feel like Jesus is saying, I see you too, and I want to minister to you. Like he loves those who are struggling with doubt. So forgiveness, doubt. If that resonates with you, I'll be right here. I'd love to pray for you. Beautiful.
0: If that's you, don't leave without receiving a touch from the Lord. Lisa, come on up.
1: Hi, and I just had a word. I feel like um, that he sees you. Uh, the word Elroy keeps coming to my mind in the name of God. Um, And I have this sense that there is something that um, I keep getting the word theft. Like there's been something that has been taken from someone. Um, It feels very personal so I'll be discreet but I feel like um, it could be from a long time ago but that he wants to release you from shame and comfort you. I'd love to pray for you.
0: He loves you very much. All right. All right. For the rest of the week do me a favor. Marinate on these three things this morning. He sees you, he loves you, and he's inviting you to see and love other people. It's your purpose. And the cross is proof. The cross is proof he sees you. The cross is proof he loves you. And The cross is proof that he's inviting you into the redemption of all things through seeing people and loving them. Oftentimes, dare I say every time, they don't deserve it. How do I know? Because neither did we but his love is stronger than that. Let me pray for us, okay? Jesus, there's no one like you. You are incomparable. You are holy. Set apart, you're different, you're amazing, you're wonderful. There's nothing more beautiful than you, nothing more spectacular than you, nothing more amazing than you, nothing more life-giving and satisfying than you. So for us this week, Lord, I pray, I might even just feel like you're highlighting now uh, the things that we take in and the things that we turn to, the things that we take in and the things that we turn to. Jesus, because there's no one like you, let us be men and women who take you in, who turn to you more than we turn to anything else. We all We all have wants and desires and needs. And we were created to want, we were created to need, but we were also created to have those wants and needs satisfied in you alone. It's the intimacy, it's the communion, it's the fellowship, it's the love. You see us in our space, in the season that we're in, you love us, and you invite us to join you in seeing and loving others. Would you help us to do that, please? Let it start with us as individuals, let it start with us as a community. Thank you for the cross. We can never say that enough. Thank you for the cross. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Thank you, Father. We honor you, Holy Spirit. Amen.